Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we'll focus on the career of a legendary songwriter, 60s icon, and Nobel Prize winner, Bob Dylan. We're also very fortunate to have a special guest with us today. So, enjoy. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I'm Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Welcome back, everybody, to the Music History Project. We are super psyched today because not only do we have an awesome topic, we also have an awesome guest. So we'd like to welcome Zach Phillips to our podcast. Woo! He is NAM's resident Bobcat and director of all things Dylan. <laughs> You've got a lot of nerve to have me on your podcast. <laughs> it is an honor to be here. My favorite topic. Thanks, guys. Uh, absolutely. I could not imagine doing this without you. So I'm super psyched. And as all of our listeners may know, the content of this podcast is based on interviews from the Oral History Program. And over the years, we have interviewed some really amazing people associated with Mr. Dylan, as well as those who were an influence to him. So I think that's going to be a really charming experience for us to go down that road and hopefully uncover some facts and ideas that maybe even the richest of Dylan fans can unearth for the first time. That's my hope. That's quite a promise. <laughs> we'll settle for a, a few good stories. How about that? Okay. No, I think we can do it. I, I think we can do it. All right. So let's get started. Would you like to help us introduce the... Um, the first one, which is uh, a legendary folk singer and songwriter, Mr. Pete Seeger, who I am just overwhelmed with happiness that we were able to interview. I mean, what? speaking of icons, here's one of them for sure. In fact, we're looking at a wall that has the United States Post Service stamp that is in honor of him, hanging up right there. And uh, so you got to be pretty cool to have a stamp with your image on it, I'm guessing. So um, I just remember this was up in the Hudson Valley of New York and our good friend Happy Tram came out with his wife because Happy's uh, music publishing company published all of Pete Seeger's method books. And so I thought, well, it would be awesome to have Happy ask the questions and it was really wonderful. I ran the camera with my mouth open the whole time listening to these amazing stories like Pete knowing, not just meeting, but knowing Woody Guthrie. I mean, how <laughs> amazing is that? So uh, in that, he tells this great story that I think is sort of the backdrop of the Bob Dylan story. And what are your thoughts about that? What really struck me about this clip was Pete Seeger talking about being blacklisted because of the McCarthyism at the time and songwriters were targeted, artists were targeted. And, um, I can't imagine he didn't keep his cool. His music is, for lack of a better term, just spiritual. And it just comes through when you, you listen to this man talk. He's, he's Pete Seeger. You see why he's an icon as a, as a human being and as an artist. 
Absolutely. So let's get started with our first segment on this special podcast dedicated to the career of Bob Dylan. In the 50s, um, you were blacklisted for a time. By the, well, it didn't make much difference to me. Right. I didn't depend on work on the radio or television or in nightclubs. I liked to sing for schools, and they didn't pay much attention to the blacklist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would, might have been nice to get a job and paying me better money, but uh, I remember I was David, on David Susskind's show once, and somebody stood up in the audience and said, Mr. Seeger, are you blacklisted? And I say, I don't know. All I know is that I'm, I don't, I'm not offered jobs on television. And Susskind looked me in the eye and said, Mr. Seeger, I can tell you, you are blacklisted. Hmm. Hmm. Not but sure how it worked. As a result <clears throat> of your playing in schools, summer camps, and other venues like that, um, a whole crop of young kids started picking up guitars and banjos and mandolins and fiddles and playing the kind of music that you were teaching them. So it kind of, there was an exponential growth from people like me and hundreds of other people like me in the 50s and then getting into the 60s where um, the, uh, the, uh, this explosion almost of people writing songs, singing songs, going back to tradition and learning songs from old records like the anthology of American folk music and so forth. So suddenly the college kids, people going to folk festivals and so forth were starting to um, kind of explode into a whole commercial kind of world of music. Uh- it's the most important job I ever did in my life. I could have kicked the bucket in 1960, and my job was mainly done. I'd shown what you could do. You didn't have to depend on nightclubs uh, to make a living, or radio or television jobs. You could sing in schools and college. Sometimes I made a very good living. I would sing for 4,000 people in the University of Wisconsin and get paid Uh, several thousand dollars, and I'd go on. Uh, A day later, I was in the University of Illinois. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, yes, I say, uh, in 1960, a whole crop of extraordinarily talented young songwriters came along, Bob Dylan, Phil Oakes, Buffy St. Marie, Joni Mitchell, and... uh, Hundreds of others. So as a result, the blacklist really backfired. Yeah. (laughs) What really strikes me with this clip is this idea in my mind of it's very difficult to stop culture from happening. The idea, Happy made the joke about the blacklist backfiring and did it ever because then you had Dylan emerge from this, (laughs) you know, and Buffy St. Marie and and Donovan and, um, you know, all these artists he names, uh, Joni Mitchell, Joan Baez. I don't think of Dylan as an especially reverent human being, but it's clear that he had incredible respect for Pete Seeger, despite probably a bit of a generation gap. And one of the things, of course, you really hear with Dylan is how much he was influenced by these old American folk songs, for sure. And Pete Seeger was probably one of his links to that. Absolutely. And I think what's really cool about this for me is 
it's historic, right? We're looking at the roots of Dylan here because yeah. here's the guy who really helped pave the way. And Pete knew it, which is awesome. You know, he says, if I died in 1960, you know, I, it would have been fine yeah. because these guys were already influenced by what I had done. I think that's fantastic. I also love the element of these union songs, right? It's not just, you know, it's the protest songs, yes, but it's the collaboration with union workers. And I think there's an important difference there because not every song in this era was a protest song. Yeah there were things that were hoping to unite people yeah. and uh, using root music and folk music and Americana music, I think was an easy way for people like Woody Guthrie in his day to do it in the 30s and the 40s and for Pete to do it in the 50s particularly and for all these other artists afterwards. I think that's what's neat about laying the groundwork for what comes next. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you know, Pete clearly, you really you really hear how much Pete respected Dylan, which is kind of heartening to think, especially given how much Dylan subverted traditional songwriting, <laughs> particularly as the 60s went on. Pretty cool. Yeah, well said. Cool. Well, let's move on to our next segment, which uh, we'd like to have uh, two amazing artists talk a little bit about the art of songwriting and their take on Dylan. Uh, We'll start with Robbie Robertson, the amazing guitarist for the band, among a million other things. It's almost unfair to just say that. Uh, He continues to make amazing music. And the legendary country artist, songwriter, Emmylou Harris. So let's start with Robbie. You know, when I was playing with Bob Dylan and the the band, you know, because we lived in Woods, up in Woodstock and, and worked out of New York City. So Manny's was a place that you not only went to buy instruments, you went just to be there. And there'd be all, you'd run into all kinds of people. It was a real crossroads of music there. That is fantastic. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. That's really neat. Another quick thing I wanted to talk about is lyrics. You know, writing some of these fantastic songs. I wonder for you, what makes a good lyric? You know, writing lyrics, going from the the early days in rock and roll, which started, you know, when I was 12, 13 years old, and hearing that lyrics had a feel, they had a sound, especially coming out of the South. It was rhythmic, the lyrics. It wasn't always that it had deep meaning or it was different than everything else. It had a feel. And so to learn to write words that had a feel to them and they sang good in that kind of way, that it felt good, you know, just coming out of your mouth. That was one kind of lyrical writing because I had just as much appreciation for Gene Vincent's Bebopalula, as I did for Hank Williams' I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, right? Um, Completely different objectives in this. And so all of this in, in, in discovering from my own storytelling growing up that, that, that story songs, pushed a very deep button inside of me. 
that I had to go there in, in my writing. And so the combination and the evolution of going through all of these phases, phases, and then I end up when I'm, I don't, 20 or 21 years old, I'm playing with Bob Dylan. So who opens the door to songwriting and lyrics in a way that it's never been opened before. And I, by then, I'd already had an appreciation for these Tin Pan Alley writers. And I'd already met Lieber and Stoller and Thomas and Schumann and Otis Blackwell, all the Brill Building guys. So, and I got my job, my first, working with Ronnie Hawkins by writing a couple of songs that he recorded. So writing was deep in, you know, in my bloodstream. And I had to pursue that. But I was fortunate that I went through these different evolutions and then ended up <clears throat> with one of the greatest songwriters that ever lived, Bob Dylan, and him breaking down, you know, borders and boundaries of songwriting and the length of songs and the words and the way this was used and that was used. And so with all of these things, it really gave me a tremendous freedom. And, uh, and at that time, I felt bold enough. And I felt bold enough to experiment with ideas that I hadn't heard before. And I, and I wasn't necessarily trying to do something that hadn't been done before. I was trying to do something really good and that really suited this group called the band. You know, I think that lyrics have always w were my entrance into music and singing, um, obviously. I'm not an instrumentalist, um, and uh, I'm still basically playing the same three chords. Um, but it was always, uh, the music is a vehicle for me, for the lyrics. Uh, I'm always moved, whether it's somebody else's song, um, you know, I'm touched by, by what they're saying, what the words are saying. And in writing, for the most part, when I write, I start with lyrics. Um, that's not always the case, which surprises me sometimes that I actually might come up with a, with a musical idea. I, I always feel a little, um, uh, that, that I'm a little limited in that area. But I'm so focused on, on the lyrics. They're, they're still always the most important. Because it's the story, you know. Um, uh, it's for me, uh, uh, music is telling stories. Well, I also think it's that connection, too. I mean, like Jerome Kern said of Irving Berlin that he was blessed with every man's ear and heart. And I always thought that was really true. If it, you can connect words to other people, wow, I wish I had thought of that, or that's yeah. how I feel. And as a, as a fan, I'm sure you've had that experience, too. Well, yeah, I mean, when I choose to sing someone else's song, it's because I feel like it's part of my story. And I guess that's how it connects us. You know, I mean, there's only a certain number of human experiences. Certainly there are variations and, and different depths of experience. Uh, but basically, you know, we, we're born, we live our lives, we fall in love, we get our heart broken, we feel joy, and then we face mortality. You know, and, and it's, it's, it's the same for, for everyone. 
in, in, in that way, obviously, there's so many different variations, but, but there is a true kernel of truth in, in, in when a song really hits and, and, and it's right. Well, I think that Harlan Howard probably said it best, our wonderful songwriter who passed away a few years ago, said, uh, three chords and the truth is what country music is, and really, in a sense, that's what all music is, the, the, the songs that tell the story of our journey you know, in this world. So we just heard from Robbie Robertson and Emmalou Harris. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I just love the fact that they're in this collection, first of all. And even a mere mention of Bob Dylan is super fantastic. Because, again, here's one guy who worked with him and then Emmalou, who was greatly influenced by him. Yeah, and both collaborators. I mean, she did sing backup with him a little bit, too. Right. Um, two, two great, I mean, Robbie Robertson may be one of Dylan's biggest collaborators. Incredible. You know what struck me, by the way, listen to this, Dan, I wrote this down. Robbie Robertson said, lyrics have a feel. They have a sound. What, to me, what, what made this profound in context of, in, in the context of Bob Dylan is there's this idea people call Dylan a poet. And I've always said it's kind of a misnomer because in a way, lyrics are not poetry because they rely on the lyrical musical aspect. And Dylan's lyrics certainly read like good poetry, but... It's the, as he said, the feel and the sound that I think give Dylan's lyrics this additional, I mean, we'll call it mystery. Um, You really rely on the music to experience Dylan's words. Absolutely. And there's also that little element of mystery, right? Is what is he talking about here? You know, what is that? You know, that's a metaphor for something. Inscrutable Bob Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) There's another Robbie quote. He opened the door to song... um, to song, I, I wrote this down incorrectly. Give me a second here. <laughs> he opened the door to, I'll, I'll paraphrase then, lyrics in a way that had never been opened before. Um, I think it's easy to underestimate Dylan's influence on art and culture. Before Bob Dylan, I think that rock lyrics were considered a, a uh, we'll just say kind of a juvenile art form. Post Bob Dylan, they were a literary art form. He brought that. He made lyrics a literary art form. Fascinating. And um, Robbie, of all people, of course, saw that, which is pretty cool. No doubt. And I think it's way more than just what he's sometimes uh, categorized as a songwriter of his generation. And then a little bit later, they said, and beyond. You know, I think it's way more than that. I think that we're almost missing the point and maybe uh, doing him a disservice by saying, oh, okay, it's just that, that, Mm -hmm. you know, he was just that. Because, I mean, we can listen to those songs and still learn something from them. I think that that's a very important point. Another important point that I wrote down is, let's just put this whole thing in perspective. Tens of millions of albums, over 500 published songs, and I think over 2,000, probably closer to 3,000 artists over the years have recorded his music. He might have a good career. He's off to a good start, is my point. We'll get there. And for those regular listeners, I am now receiving emails from listeners saying it's not a podcast, uh, a music history project podcast without Dan making some reference to Elvis. So I will say that Elvis loves singing bass, and he found the best tool to do that was Tomorrow's a Long Time. (laughs) And if you hear that recording, I think you'll pick up on that. So, yes, Elvis sang Dylan. 
All the same, Dylan. <laughs> Ro- by Robbie Robertson. I know this is a podcast about Dylan, but I think of the two of them as brethren in a way. Um, God, there was so much in just this short clip. Robbie Robertson said, I wasn't necessarily trying to do something that hadn't been done before. I was trying to do something really good. Here's the here's something <laughs> remarkable about this. As an artist, I think people always think, um, I need to do something. I need to be innovative. But sometimes you just have to focus on doing something good to do some, something innovative. I, you know, I you listen to the music of the band, and it's one of the most um, fascinating takes on American folk music, and actually quite innovative in its own way. But he wasn't striving to to uh, upend any tradition. And Zach, I think you had a personal encounter with Robbie Robertson at the NAMM show. Is that right? I do have a story, Alex, and I'm glad you brought that up because it, to me it was one of those um, moments that encapsulated somebody's personality in microcosm perfectly. Uh, it was the 2017 NAMM show. It was, it was at the start of the show, and Robbie came to the show. We were so honored to have them because we were going to present him with what we call the Music for Life Award, which is really the highest honor NAMM gives away to an artist for their, contributes, their contributions to culture, to music making, and to artistry that has influenced our industry. And we're going to present this award to him at the opening session. Beforehand, he's in the green room, and I just read his autobiography, which is fantastic. I recommend it to anybody. And uh, I brought it down with me, and I sort of nervously handed it to him and said, hey, Robbie, would you mind signing this for me? I just I absolutely love your book. And he takes the book, he kind of turns to his manager, and by the way, my, my name is Zach, he turns to his manager, and he just says, does he spell his name with a C-H or a C-K? And I thought that was the most wonderful, polite, um, rock star move I had ever seen. It was actually very Canadian of him in so many ways. Yes. Well, you know, it's funny, again, this is about Dylan, but the influence that uh, Robbie picked up from Dylan should not also be overshadowed. We probably should do a podcast about Robbie Robertson because what an amazing songwriter in his own right. Really clever lyrics and blending of music, and I think he learned that from Dylan. He did, but the thing that's that's so strange about Robbie Robertson is where the heck did the band's music come from? I mean, it's... Timeless is an overused word. It sounds like it could have been made 300 years ago. It sounds like it could be made 300 years from now. And you, by the way, you really hear that on the Basement Tapes, one of his big collaborations with Dylan. It was one of the, the influences the band brought to that album, probably to Dylan's subconscious when he was writing those songs. So an amazing collaborator for sure. Collaborators don't get enough, enough love, do they? Robbie Robertson deserves, he deserves our admiration. No doubt about it. Another member of the band was also interviewed, and this one, um, Suzanne traveled with me to upstate New York to hang out with Garth Hudson, and boy, Mm. was that an experience and a half. (laughs) We could talk all day about just how awesome it is to be with somebody in the inner circle of Bob Dylan. You remember that, Suzanne? I do. That was a very unique experience. I I think it was about an eight-hour day, and it involved orange juice and almost being eaten by a bear and um, feeding the chickens. And it was, it was quite the and stormy weather and dangerous and, travel. And, and taking a break for recreational 
behaviors. Yes. <laughs> By the way, when interviewing a genius like Garth Hudson, that's exactly the kind of experience you want to have going into it. <laughs> no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. The, the orange juice was, was that just because he was expecting to? Well, he was a little, um, they were a little late getting there. Um, Sister Maud brought him and he wife. was a little, I, I don't want to say disorganized, a little eccentric. You know, who are we to tell him to sit down? We're going to interview you now. And it wasn't quite going too well initially. So I just started filming. So I'm filming him on the piano bench, drinking orange juice, thinking, okay, this might be all that we get. And then I think we had a break and he, he had set up an instrument, which I'm sure you remember what it was. Oh, yeah, um, the pipe organ. The pipe yeah. organ. And there was feeding the chickens and going and having a little break. Um, but then it, it turned out quite nicely, I believe. <laughs> oh, then he started playing for us and then just talking about the importance of his first piano teacher and learning that pros possibly the most important part of playing is how you lift your hands off the keyboard for that last note. I mean, just really amazing, insightful. And and what kept going through my mind are all these records I've heard my whole life of what, that he's on yeah. and thinking those are the hands that did this. And it was just absolutely an incredible experience. Something that comes through, by the way, Dan and Robbie Robertson's book related to that is that when they got Garth Hudson in the band, it was a very big deal because he was considered this musical polymath. And one of the concerns, I, I read the book right, you know, it was years ago now, but I believe there's a sort of a, a bit of a concern among Garth's family that being in a band like the band would corrupt him. <laughs> and I think he may have been a few years older than the rest of those guys. The whole thing was, was, was funny, but it spoke to this, um, just this unique personality and, and life that he has. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what was really cool is his, his wife, Sister Maud, told us later, I think a week later, okay, as soon as this is posted, give us a link, we'll put it on Facebook, and you're going to get a lot of responses. And I thought, Oh, okay. We, you know, sometimes hear that from managers and so on. Oh my gosh. I mean, we got a, I got a call at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon from the director here at NAM of the IT department saying, what is happening? We now have more people on the website than we've ever had at one time. Cool. Thanks to Sister Maud and her posting. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. Here is Garth Hudson. Well, here's the mystery then. What was that Leslie-like device that Robbie used on a few of the band's songs? It's obviously a Leslie phase shift, phase shift uh, Doppler effect device, but not really. It's not a real Leslie. It's a little black box this big that Pete Trainer built for me. Huh. And... Uh, the black box. It, it showed up. A guitar player with our autistic uh, think tank group had a, uh, they had a benefit, Maude, Sister Maude, and I went over, and it was great. Uh, a lot of players, you know. The guitar player showed up with the black box years later. Apparently, Robbie had cleared out one of his storage places, probably, and said, well, you know, that's fine. But it went around from yard sale to 
storage tale, I don't know. But the guitar player picked it up and uh, it sounds the same and he used it on the show in uh, Los Angeles. Um, many uh, pleasant memories there. Um, so we took pictures of, sit, you know, sitting on the black box and it's a cube. <laughs> so it does sound different than the rectangular shaped traditional, original uh, Leslie. And, and uh, if you listen to it, probably, you know, if I was to appear before a class or a, do a master series, you know, that includes a few of these uh, aspects, I would have an example whenever possible. Uh, and here's one which I have been working on, Richard's piano. Brilliant, careful rhythm piano throughout. It's a sound, it's part of the sound that, you know, sometimes people may miss, and writers and critics have <laughs> missed all that, that that's there, you know, it's there. He works with Levon on what they call push beats, you know. So what I want to find, I'll go through it again, it'll help me, see? but I'll go through it again and find that four bars out of one. Make extracts like that. Uh, sure, you can tell people, here, take the CD home and listen to track four over and over again. But if you do have that extraction, I know it's clinical, Lord, I know it's antiseptic and all, but, um, <clears throat> Then that's, that makes your point. And so on a turnaround, which is the last, or the two bars or four bars preceding next section, um, Levon and Richard will have certain things worked out. And that's the turnaround. Now, I was talking with Bob Margolis and I said, is that what you guys call it, a turnaround? He says, yeah, turnaround. He said, Muddy, Bob played guitar with Muddy Waters for years and years, you know. Muddy calls it the look-around. <laughs> the look-around. Look Try and make it sound like you're together on this, you know. I think that's what he meant. But uh, <laughs> that was funny. That's fantastic. That is so true. That's what you're doing, right? You're looking around. What What, what are you guys doing? Oh, okay. When's the first beat in the right. next section when did come? we come in? <laughs> ba, 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 ba. Yeah. That was funny. Garth, I was wondering if you could share with us a, a favorite story uh, regarding a musical instrument experience with Dylan. Does anything come to mind, like when you were playing a new instrument with him or, or doing something different? Well, there's a story that nobody should have to be thinking about. He didn't like the Lowry organ. 
I knew that. Because, see, on his record, uh, Al Cooper played the organ. It's a Hammond with percussion. Uh, whatever it was, like a Rolling Stone, I think. And I think Dylan, of course, was right that if we went and played for all these people, that should that was a defining uh, sound character in that song. And uh, so they worked well together, Al Cooper and, and Dylan. I never, I might have used a Hammond, but somehow insisted on the Lowry. And of course, Leon and Robbie backed me up on that too. You know, uh, uh, so whenever, oh, say, um, Whenever you hear a record with Dylan, it's a, it's a Lowry. And the best one, this is what happens after a few years. You say, uh, well, uh, that was all pretty good, but I wonder which one would the, would the radio announcer pick, you know, the programmer. Uh, so there's one in Planet Waves that's pretty well basically what I do between the organ, the piano, and so on, and I would say, that's it, you know, it's got most of this, the uh, logistics and priorities uh, that I uh, had maintained through all of the recordings, you know, and the performances. And I'm not sure what it is, I'll be able to find it. Tomorrow I can make a phone call and have somebody work on it. You know, it's probably obvious. So there are a couple other things. He would say, speak the line, and I would put the blues-style interjection. And I think it worked out pretty well, and there's a video on it. Might have done that in Australia. Um, and it's a Lowry. So that's number two, you know, on the list as far as just what I did that It's absolutely fantastic to uh, have you here, Zach. Thank you so much for joining us and adding your perspective. This is making it even more meaningful to me to share these wonderful stories. And of course, um, Garth Hudson. Oh my gosh, there's so much to say about him and his contributions and and his uh, idiosyncrasies make him very charming, I must say. Um, what's interesting is he really preferred the Lowry organ. And while it wasn't necessarily... Bob Dylan's favorite instrument. I think he insisted enough that it be used, that it was always used. I think that the festival um, model that Garth used during most of his career uh, can be heard on hundreds of great recordings. One of my favorites is uh, Chest Fever. Um, I think that was back in 1968. Yeah. Music just amazing. Yeah, just absolutely amazing. Um, just a little interesting insight. The uh, the Lowry organ was actually produced in Chicago starting in the 40s, uh, one of the first electronic organs to come out of uh, Mr. Hammond's innovations. And, um, you know, with organ stops for over 60 notes, 
but still maintaining those functionalities of a piano. It really was a perfect instrument for beginners as well as professionals like Garth. And I think it's no uh, small feat to overcome the sales of a Hammond B3 in that era, but it did. It was the top selling organ for many, many years. And um, just as an interesting side note, Lowry wanting to boost their uh presence at the NAM show in the late 60s, and I do believe this is 1969, they were thinking about having a special guest come so that they could raise some, you know, some notoriety. So they picked this guy named Neil Armstrong. And can you imagine this guy who just was on this other thing called the moon is here at the NAM show representing the Lowry organ. That tells you how big that instrument was at the time. <laughs> hey, Thomas Edison, Steve Wozniak. We've had some interesting folks attend the NAMM show. No doubt. Well said. So, Suzanne, what's next? Well, first, Dan, thank you for that bit of history. I think we all learned something. <laughs> so next we're going to hear from live sound pioneers, the Hanley Brothers. We were fortunate enough to interview Terry and Bill back in 2021 at Performance Music outside of Boston. So, Joe Mullins, thank you very much for the space. I'm sort of curious about what you saw as the development of the Newport uh, Folk Festival. I know you were involved with that for quite some time. Yes, in the Philadelphia 20 years, the Philadelphia Folk Festival. Oh, wow. uh, well, it just it just carried over. It was the same setup that we used right. for the jazz, the jazz festival. Oh, it was. Oh, they, okay. they, at, at one point, they said, well, let's do a folk festival here. And so we used the same setup for the folk festival as we did for the jazz, pretty much the same. And we used the same, the stage and everything was still the same, the sound system. So that's, uh, I guess we were there, at the, so we got to do the, the folk festival in, in Newport. I, I, and we low-balled the price to get the job, so we didn't make any money, really. We got prestige, though, and notoriety. Well, and you, were you guys there for the, the Dylan 65? Oh, you were. Oh, yeah, that was a... Well, see, up until that time, the speakers didn't stay together very well when they started pushing them. And uh, the way you could tell, I, when do we start bringing the oscilloscope down to Newport? I don't remember, Bill. I started bringing the test equipment out of the shop and to watch the amplifiers and what was going on so that, in the clipping and to avoid that. And uh, well, very early on, we get into using limiters all the time to, to yep. keep from overdriving the amplifiers. LA two ways, right? Electronics, which was a great tool. Mm. But before that, <clears throat> what we had to do was listen for distortion and the amplifiers going into clipping before they went into silence, <laughs> which is what would happen when the diaphragms would turn into snowflakes, aluminum snowflakes. And then as soon as that happened, the voice coil got overheated and would blow out. And that was the end of the loudspeaker. So how do you know where the distortion is coming from? Dylan is using distortion as a instrument to define the nastiness that he was in his music that he was trying to demonstrate or do. And uh, 
So I'm chewing my nails, worrying whether this distortion is coming from me being overdriven or whether he's feeding me overdriven information brought back in the, in the parameters, the useful safe diameters of the dramatics, dynamics of the sound system. So that was a, it was a hairy situation. And speakers had slowly evolved. We started using a phenolic diaphragm. When did EV started using a phenolic diagram, a diaphragm? In what, in which drivers, Bill? The ones that I used, they used aluminum diaphragms. The smaller ones, the 1823Ms were phenolic diaphragms. Okay. The ones that I was using in the uh, century fours and the, the 5050s and stuff. But Altec added- Went to a 290. That's right. That's, that was a phenolic driver. It would take more power and didn't have the high end that the uh, 288s had, but it didn't blow up as frequently when you're trying to push it loud for rock and roll. Mm. So that was a little bit of an issue. It's better to have sound oh. than no sound because it, you fried your top end. <laughs> Old Dylan sending out part of his uh, work distortion. <laughs> Now, the level of distortion is something else. That's, that we can control, but how do you know which is doing it? It's, it's more difficult because we're now in the audience. The level's high, and I'm worried about that. It's my responsibility to make this thing work from one end to the other and keep it going without any silence. <laughs> and uh, so that's... Uh, that's basically how did that how end? Did Dylan, huh? How did that end? Not oh, well, right? No, it ended fine. There was some, some you know, people booed him and some people loved it and who knows. I, that wasn't my, my job is from the mouth to the ear, not to who wrote the music. and so He, was, he was stressed out about the, the distortion and, and what was going on, whether it was going to smoke the speakers or not. Right, and I was just sort of curious about, was there a moment where you realized that he's feeding? Oh, I knew it was because oh, we, yeah. were, we have pictures of the rehearsal oh, with gotcha. Al Cooper playing the organ and everything. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> and so I knew it was going to happen, but it was a surprise that it was going to happen at rehearsal. But how do you deal with that? Mm. I think that's when we started bringing this oscilloscope to watch the amplifiers and we could differentiate then whether this distortion was happening. We could watch the inputs and the outputs with the scope. Right. And you could see a visual cue. Whenever you got a linear line, either sloping or not, you knew that you were clipping. Somewhere, somewhere something was being clipped. And if we turned our level down, we could see that whole flat go out bad, or the, if it was the other way, you'd just see it come to a sinusoidal situation. I often think about what would have happened if Dylan hadn't gone electric and if he had stuck to being a folk-styled acoustic singer-songwriter, and I think he would have been remembered as one of the great singer-songwriters. That said, I don't know that he would have been remembered as an iconic artist who changed culture and songwriting, um, maybe beyond uh, uh, influencing the folk movement in a meaningful way. This, 
Of course, it's been well chronicled. This is that demarcation point in Dylan's career culturally where he went electric. It was a really big deal to a lot of people. A lot of people felt alienated by it. And I can only assume since I wasn't there at the time that a lot of folk music was a really big deal to people culturally. Vietnam was heating up. This was a conduit to speak about things that were on people's minds. And Dylan, who was sort of their mouthpiece for that, was subverting that in their minds or just abandoning that. Mm. Ironically, I believe, and many do, that he then made pretty much the greatest rock music of all time. <laughs> Love those first four albums. Those are some of some of the great singer-songwriter albums in the canon of singer-songwriter albums. But, of course, his trilogy came after that, and it's some of the finest music ever made. So um, I guess you have to make some sacrifices in the name of art sometimes. Well, he certainly did that, I think. What's interesting to me is just that moment. I sometimes think about that moment, picture it in my head, of leaning over with his uh, Fender Stratocaster around his neck, that plug in his hand, getting closer and closer (laughs) to the amplifier, you know, thinking, okay, what's going to happen here? And he knew what was going to happen. You know, there were a lot of people in that audience that weren't happy about it at all. But I also think, as you said, Zach, it really changed the course, certainly of his career, but I think the course of many other people's career as well. A lot of influence out there from people who aren't talking as much about the uh, pre-Newport days as they do about the post. Yeah, absolutely. Funny enough, if if everybody hasn't seen it, it's worth watching the Dylan, I'll just call it a biopic loosely, uh, the film I'm Not There. Mm. And what makes this film fascinating, of course, is they have different actors playing different and different Dylan in different periods of his career. And Kate Blanchett portrays mid-60s Dylan. And it is one of the most spot-on impressions of mid-60s Dylan I've ever seen. I, I hope, I, I don't think she won enough awards for this. It is brilliant. And it's one of the great moments in cinema. I was wondering, I, I waited with anticipation to see how they were going to present this. Um, it shows her getting up on stage at the Newport Folk Festival, and the film is full of magical realism. It's not literal. She gets up there with a the band, and they take out a bunch of machine guns and start firing at the audience. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what he did, really. <laughs> the, by, by the way, I was mentioning, we were, we were talking about it earlier, Dan, there's a, uh, a restored version of this performance. I, I listened to Maggie's Farm this morning, mm. and it's restored. somebody had restored it on YouTube, and it sounds quite good. I mean, it was an aggressive performance, but I'm sure, you know, people were probably just shocked that they're... they're their idol, maybe to some of them, sort of their profit was changing direction. Mm. Well, he wanted to shake things up, and he certainly did do that. Yes, and that's not did. the only time he's done that. No. No, and his music did change, and his sound changed. One of the things that I think Emmy Lou Harris mentioned in that interview, and I think Robbie Robertson as well, is this concept of story songs. Well, Dylan has some great story songs. You think of like Hurricane, for instance, or Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. But I don't think of Dylan as a story singer-songwriter. And this was a moment where that Mm. just went out the door. Dylan's very impressionistic. Um, His music's very surreal. It's, whether he meant to or not, designed to um, really infiltrate the subconscious in the imagery he uses and the concepts he uses. And I think that style of songwriting began at this point, too. It was not, you know, it was not our parents' folk music anymore. Mm. Big change. 
No doubt about it. Yeah. And he was consistent with that change too, right? I mean, it's almost as if he had a plan of, okay, this is the first step. And then I'll let people sort of take a deep breath. Yeah. You know, digest that and then yeah. I'll give him another one. And I think he's still <laughs> doing that to some degree. Yeah. He, Dylan loves to, uh, Dylan loves to play with us and toy with us. <laughs> as he says on his 2020 album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, good album. Um, I contain multitudes. I think that's how he, that's the opening song, and that that about says it all. No doubt. Somebody said earlier, I was talking with a younger uh, one of our younger team members here at Nam about Joker Man and the Infidels album, hmm. and he said, "Yeah, Dylan just loves to troll us, doesn't he?" And I thought he does, and it's delightful. <laughs> as long as you know it's a cat and mouse game, then it's, it's not so bad. Then it's okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been a really fun and fascinating podcast. Mm. I think one of our favorites. Definitely. Um, and part of it, well, 95% is due to our special guest, Zach Phillips. Oh, yay. I'm blushing. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, Suzanne. Well, actually, I realize you're not such a special guest because we have you with us on every podcast. If you're not aware of this, Zach wrote and recorded our intro music. So we want to thank you for that. You're always with us in our hearts. True. Wow. Influenced by Dylan, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you, Suzanne. It's an honor to be here chatting with everybody about we, such an incredibly fascinating topic. Love it. Yeah. I, I reiterate what uh, Suzanne says. You are a part of our team, so it's wonderful to see you face to face. Thank you so much for sharing your Dylan thoughts. And now I'm totally motivated to continue to interview people about Bob Dylan so we can have a part two one of these days. I hope we've um, helped illuminate a tiny little bit of the mystery that is Bob Dylan. And I'd like to take this opportunity to say, Bob, we're here. When you want to give your side, let us know. <laughs> Zach, thank you so very much that you took the time to be here and uh, share your insights. And by the way, the outro music is yours too. Aha. Lower your expectations, folks. <laughs> here it comes. Here comes the uh, outro. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. And to quote our subject today, at this point, we shall be released. Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino. Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And Alex Rosner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.